welcome to another episode of Quest for You. I'm Janine and today I'm honored to bring you a very special quest story. Just when I think the stories I bring you cannot get more powerful, more moving, more life-changing, the next one is just that, more. My conversation with Marilyn Washington Harris was not easy. It probably wasn't easy for Marilyn to share it. And it was hard for me because I didn't know what to ask. I didn't even want to ask. I just wanted to listen. And you will find yourself doing the same as you listen to this conversation. I didn't want to interrupt because this is a very special story that really doesn't need any questions. It's Marilyn's story. A story of a mother who loves her son. And I thought long and hard about this one sentence. Because in the following conversation, you will hear about the tragic loss of her son. But I didn't want to call it a story of loss, because that's not what it is. It's a story of love. The love of a mother who does everything in her power, even after everyone else would give up. The love of friends that are standing by her side, no matter what. The love for God and the trust that He knows what we need and a love for everyone else who goes through something similar. Marilyn taught me a very important lesson in this conversation. She showed me that it's not just about me. She showed me that no matter how difficult an obstacle I may face, it doesn't end with my pain. Instead, pain is the fuel to move us forward, onward, and into something more. It's inside that pain that we may see the next step. And it's often by helping others that we find a way to live with our pain. My friends, I invite you to listen today to a mother's story of love. And I invite you to then take a look at your life and check yourself where you have stopped because of pain. And maybe you go right back there where you stopped and you find a way to start again. A way to move forward together with your pain and with love. I'm linking to Marilyn's foundation, which is named after her son, the Gaddafi Washington Project, which provides critical response to families and friends of homicide victims in my show notes. Marilyn is an amazing woman. She is now in the process of launching a podcast with the same title, A Mother's Story. And as soon as I have more detail on that, I will share it with you because it's something that you definitely want to listen to. And it's maybe something that you know someone who wants to contribute to that project. In the meantime, please join me in this moving and inspiring conversation with Marilyn Washington Harris. And don't forget to share this episode with a friend who may really need to hear it right now. Much love. All right, here I am in West Oakland, my first live interview in a long time. We made it happen despite COVID. We are safe. Yes. And uh, I have here with me Marilyn Washington Harris. And I'm so excited to finally meet you in person and to hear your impactful story, a life-changing story. And I hope it's life-changing for all of us who listen, because I think we can all take something out of this, even though I haven't heard it yet, but I already know, I already know this is going to be great. So Marilyn, thank you so much for being here and meeting with me. Thank you so much, Janine, for having me. I want to start off just, if you could share a little bit about your life, where you grew up, maybe some challenges that you had while you were growing up that you still remember. My name is Marilyn Washington Harris, and I grew up in Florida. I actually grew up in Sarasota, Florida, and I went to school under the name of Marilyn Williams. There, um, my mom had, I have um, five sisters and brothers. I'm the oldest of five. I was there until I was 19 years old, and I left and went to the Job Corps. But while I was there, some life-altering changes happened. Like with anyone, um, we don't ever know where we're going. 
we know today is today, mm -hmm. but we don't know that when we get to the next corner, there may be a car that did not stop at the stop sign that may hit you, and then things change. Everything you knew before that happened changes for you. Mm -hmm. And when I was uh, 17, my brother got killed by the police in Sarasota. He was killed, uh, no, I was 18, and he was 16, and he was shot by the um, Sarasota police. They killed him. He was actually shot in the house, and you know, we, we never really found out what really happened. Um, we know that what happened was shady because the house was mopped, the walls had been washed down, and we know that the police department is not supposed to do that. But all that was done by the time they made it back to the house. So my brother's name was Donald Williams, and I loved him so because I'm the oldest and he was the second oldest. So, you know, we were two peas in a pod. We knew each other. And my brother, uh, he had some life challenges. He's, he was what we would call nowadays a special kid. Um, but he was my brother. Mm -hmm. um, first time I ever had a, lo a loss, but a life-altering change that put me on a spin that I'd been on for so many years and I'd actually forgotten about it because you continue to live your life and things change and things seem like they get better and things seem like they get worse. But I, I remember saying that if it was the last thing I was gonna do, I wanted to do something about my brother being killed. How well did I not know that I would really be doing that? Um, so it was always in the back of my mind about my brother mm -hmm. and how unfair it was that he was killed and nobody had to pay for that and it, that murder because that's what it was. It was a murder. It wasn't a homicide. It was a murder. Um, so I, I, I left there. Like I said, I went to the job corps. And from the job corps, I came to Oakland to attend College Alameda and Cal State Hayward. I met and married Marvin Washington. And from that marriage, we had three children, Khadijah, Qaddafi, which was my son, and Kadreen was the baby girl. I lived in East Oakland. We moved back to West Oakland, uh, probably, it was 1979. I think Khadijah was, I think Khadijah was two. Qaddafi wasn't born then because he wasn't born until 82. But I had my children here. We were living on 10th Street. And we're actually on 10th and Adeline now where we're doing the recording. Mm. And my children went to school here. Uh, they attended Martin Luther King. Qaddafi uh, attended St. Patrick's. And Lowell Junior High is where they went. And then Qaddafi went on to attend McClymouth High School. Qaddafi was one of the kids, you know, because I could see daily that the drugs and the alcohol and other things was taking young men and women out of here daily. And I made myself a promise this, this would not happen to my child. I made sure he went to the better schools and did the work. But unfortunately, when things are gonna happen, it's gonna happen because I think this, I don't think I know. The scriptures say, I knew you before you were formed in the womb. Um, God knows everything, we just don't. But Gaddafi played baseball, football, and basketball. So I told him, you, you need to pick one because I didn't want to spend every Saturday morning up going to the track team, going to the baseball team. So he chose football. And they used to play on a field down in West Oakland. And of course, I can't think of the name of the field. But I remember one Saturday, he told me, he said, uh, Mom, the, 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 the coach is going to move me up because he was, a, he was a husky young man. And I said, move you up to where? And he said, he's gonna move me up and um, I'm gonna have to start being, a, I think he said, a running back. He, and I said, well, what's, what's wrong with that? He said, I don't want to because that's when they can hit you. I said, what do you mean hit you? He said, they can hit you and tackle you. And I said, well, what's the problem with that? And he said, the big boys hit you. 
And he said, I'm afraid. And I said, well, what are you afraid of? He said, because when they hit you, you may not get back up. And I said, I'm going to be there. I said, you know, mommy's going to always be there. So when they hit you, I want you just to roll over and just jump back up. I said, because I'm going to be hollering for you to get back up, get back up. Sure enough, during the game, he got hit. And I said, get up, Gaddafi, get up. And he rolled over and he got back up and he shook his hands at me like, yay, I'm up. And so later on that night when we went home and I asked him, I said, well, how was it? He said, what I remember, Mom, is you told me that I was supposed to roll over and get back up. He said, and that's all I did was roll over and got back up. He said, you didn't see, but I got hit again. I said, I did see you got hit again. And he said, and it didn't even hurt. I said, don't concentrate on being hurt. Concentrate on the game. And that's what he did. He loved football. Mm. Um, he was playing basketball. He was still playing basketball. He had a team that he played with. And they played at the YMCA down here off of Market Street. And they had to forfeit the game because the other team were doing some cheating. So one of the guys came down and hit one of the guys. And, you know, the coach told them, you know, uh, be good team spirit, don't do not do that. So I guess the guy that was hitting kept doing it. He was elbowing and hitting the, hitting the other kids. So unfortunately, when he came down and elbowed Gaddafi, he couldn't take it. So he punched the boy back. So they had to forfeit the game. Mm-hmm. And I'd forgotten about that until I ran into the coach a few years ago, and mm-hmm. he reminded me of it. But nevertheless... Um, can I ask a question? Sure. What was it like? So this was in the 80s, right? When this he... was uh, this, um, late 80s. Late 80s? he was born in 82. Okay. What was it like here in West Oakland during that time? Uh, late 80s, um, West Oakland was still full of a lot of drugs. Mm. I, like most parents, I didn't live on the streets. I lived in the apartment. I got up every morning. I put on my clothes. I went to work. Uh, my husband did the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband worked for Naval Supply. I worked for uh, Alameda Naval Air Station. Mm-hmm. So we we both went to work every day. We saw the drug activity, but like I said, it was it was outside of the house. It didn't come into our household. It wasn't something that we were really concerned about because um, our, our thing was we were going to raise our children the best way we knew how. Because other people have done it. You can live in a community and raise your children the best way you know how. And it doesn't mean that anything's going to happen, but eventually you will have to get involved. And that's what happened to me. And this happened way before anything happened to Gaddafi. I've been a part of the, the ACORN Tenant Association here in ACORN, and that's, this is where we are. These are the ACORN apartments. And I was asked to serve on um, the Tenant Association, which I didn't want to do because I was trying to uh, go to Cal State Avery and finish my degree, and I was also trying to be the best mother I knew how, and I just didn't have any extra time. But... Uh, my friend Jan, who I call my sister now, she just insisted, you need to get involved. Um, we need some strong-minded women who can come and, and make this happen. So I told her, I'm not promising, but I'll come and go with you. And I, and I did, and I, and I saw a lot of women and men who were unable to help themselves. Hmm. I don't mean to sound like I'm the, I was the great hope because I wasn't. It's just that I saw a need. And my mom always said, when you see a need, you need to fix that need. So, you know, we saw people who were really living in squatter. It was squatter, and it really was. And I remember that that year that I got involved, it started to rain. And we began to hear these stories. People would come out, and they'll say, "Um, well, it's raining in my apartment, and the office won't do anything about it. During that time... They, they had taken away all the Section 8. And I said, Section 8? I never got a Section 8. We always paid market rent, my husband and I. And so it stormed that, that first year. And the woman called me and she said, I need some help over here because it's raining in my apartment. So I said, well, okay, I'll, I'll come over and take a look. So I got up and went to the woman's apartment. The woman had a three-bedroom apartment. 
but she and her three kids were sleeping in the living room because all the bedrooms upstairs had holes in the ceiling. And the holes was actually, when it was raining, I could see mushrooms dropping out from where the mushrooms had grown. My God. And they were paying rent. And, and she was paying rent because she was afraid not to pay rent. So uh, I got involved in that because of Janet. She wanted me to get involved. And I have a need to not let people who are being misused, I don't like for people to use them. And so, you know, we had to do something about it because she wasn't the only one. We found out there was other families here who were paying rent, had things wrong, but they were afraid to voice their opinion. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, um, formed a tenant association, had to run for an election, had to do everything to satisfy HUD in San Francisco. Otherwise, we couldn't have the organization. And that's what we did. We did what we were supposed to do got at the resident council, we call it the resident council now, it was a tenant association then, and ran an election, won the election, and then HUD was forced to deal with us. And of course we had a lot of demands that we wanted. It took a good seven years, but we got this place rehabbed, got it redone, um, everybody was involved, the city, the police department, Police department said it was too congested in here and that they needed to take some units out. And they did. They took out a good 500 units. These used to be three-story buildings. But they said that when they got to Acorn, they could never catch anybody because it was so condensed. They didn't know in, the ins and outs, but the people who lived here did. Mm -hmm. And so they would run in, they would run in into Acorn. Police couldn't catch them because they didn't know how to maneuver the way young people did. But even with that, I was doing my best to help people doing that, still doing motherly things and still working. Mm -hmm. I used to work for the Oakland Tribune. I had um, Qaddafi and his sisters were um, selling newspapers on the weekend. Um, we would sell newspapers on Sunday. Papers were $1.50. They would give me 50 cent and they would actually keep the dollar and we would turn it into the Tribune. Uh, when they had the Oakland Raiders, when they were doing really good here in Oakland, <laughs> when the games were at the um, Coliseum, I would take the kids out in the afternoon. After they sold papers that morning, we would go out there in the afternoon, and they would sell the papers for a dollar. And, of course, people would give them tips, and all the kids loved it. They'd be doing their little parties in the parking lot, and the kids would just love it. A few times, some of the uh, players would come out and talk to the kids, so they would have so much fun. But other kids in the community would say to Gaddafi, will your mama let me come and go to work with her? Can we go to work with you on Sunday? And he'll say, yeah, my mama will pick you up. And they used to meet me right on the corner of Adeline and 8th Street. And I would pick up as many kids as I could take. And sometimes I'd come back and get kids mm -hmm. because they wanted to make some money. And it was money. They didn't have to sell drugs they would come and make their money that day. And I never took their money and made sure they kept it. Mother's dad made sure they, I would take them all to the store to get something for their mother. I said, because Safeway at that time was selling one single rose. You could get us one single rose for $3. Kids love that. I said, you have to buy your mother something because it's because of her that you're here. I said, because abortions have been legal for a long time and she could have had an abortion, but she chose to have you? And the kids would all laugh, well, I don't want to do that, Ms. Marilyn. I'd say, I know you don't, but you need to do it. You need to do it. So, hmm. you know, a lot of the young men worked with me at that time. Wow. Um, so you already had a positive influence on... All the time, on, on something. On young people. <laughs> on and young people, all the time. Even here, um, Defermary Park had a program there called Scotland. During the summer, they would hire young people. We would have them to hire them, and we'd let them come down here and work. But what, they would, what we would do with the children was not just let them come down here and have fun, because we have a pool on the other side. So they did monitoring on the pool, and we had them doing gardening. Um, in the morning, they had to this learn is how to write the a apartments. In, in the apartments here yeah. now. They had to learn to write a resume. We, you know, we taught them how to look on the computer, how to Google and see how to write a resume, how to 
back that out and put their name in. And I said, it's very easy. You know, this is the easy one. As you grow older, you'll do something different. So they learned to do that. And sometimes we would have 40 children down here working because they wanted a place to go and work. We made sure they got a place to work because they needed it. Yeah. They needed to see something positive. Mm-hmm. And Janet and I was all about making things positive for the young men and women that, that chose to do something right. You know, along the way, we've, we've lost some children. Um, all of them didn't, some of them died in car crashes, you know. And unfortunately, some of them ODed. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately for my son, he was killed. Never would have thought that would have happened. Yeah, so let's get to that yes. story, which happened in 2000, is that right? Yes, August 4th. Oh. So it, this month made 20 years that Gaddafi has been gone. And what? It, today is the 20th, today is the August 20th, so it was on the 4th. Still like it was yesterday. You know, I... My daughter said he didn't, he didn't come home last night. Well, he never spent out the night out. Even though he was 18 years old, he never stayed away from home. He was registered at Laney College, so he was going there. And during the daytime, I didn't know that he was going to back to McClimates, helping with the coaching. Uh, when he left there that Friday night, and I said, where are you going? And he said, I have some place to go, I got some place to be. And I said, okay, well, you make sure you come back and check on us. Make sure you come back and check on your sister because his sister needed a kidney transplant. Hmm. And he had been tested, he was gonna give her a kidney. They wouldn't let him do it while he was still in school because they said, you might be influencing him to do it and it has to be he has to make his decision. And he, of course, he was going to give his sister a kidney. But he got killed at night, and nobody told the um, EMTs that he was going to give his sister a kidney. So nevertheless, when he got killed August 4th, Saturday was the 5th, I always thought he got killed on August 5th. But he actually got killed that Friday night and not that Saturday morning. His uh, death certificate says uh, Friday at 10 something. But now I've learned that it was actually at nine something. So they only put on the death certificate what they know. Mm. But I've gotten from some other things and from some of the police reports that he actually actually was dead around 9.15. He got killed up at his favorite place, the school. Now, what was he doing at the school? He was shooting dice with some other kids. And this was at nine something. He rode his bicycle down there. And he was up there shooting, shooting dice with some other people. That afternoon, he'd gotten $2,500 from me. It was his money and I gave it to him because we had sued Acorn in a lawsuit. His money stayed in the bank until he turned 18. Mm-hmm. So. I gave him, he asked for his money because he wanted to buy, he wanted a stereo and some tires and stuff for his car. He'd gone and gotten a car from the auction, and my husband said, give it to him because it's his money. You know, stop nickel and diamond him. He doesn't need to keep coming back to you for $100 today, and then a couple days he wants another 100 He said, just give him all of his money, let him go get his stuff and so we can put it on the car. But like I said, he got killed at night. We still didn't know. I didn't find out for sure until about maybe two or three that afternoon because my daughter Khadijah, the one who needed the kidney transplant, she kept saying he would have been and came home by now because she, she was back living with us because she'd had a surgery. And the baby girl said someone had come to the house and said they had found a body at McClimas and they thought it was Gaddafi. And when she told me that, I'm saying to myself, no, that, that, that can't be true. It's not Gaddafi. But in my head, I, I knew it was. Because before all of that happened, April of 2000, it wasn't a, it wasn't a dream. It wasn't a vision. I clearly remember hearing God say, 
Someone's going to kill Gaddafi, and you need to let him know. Was that during prayer or when? when? Yeah, I'd, got, I'd been up that morning praying. Mm-hmm. So I went into his room and I told him, Gaddafi, God said someone's going to kill you. I don't know why or who it's going to be, but what I want you to do is when they come upon you, I said, I want you to ask the Lord for forgiveness for all the things you've done wrong. I said, and tell him you believe in him. Well, I prayed for a long time that that happened, and I, I actually found out that it did happen. But I was able to tell him, and he said to me, Mommy, don't tell me that, because whenever you tell me things, they come true. I said, I don't want to tell you this, because I don't even want to say it, but I don't have a choice. I, I have to tell you this. Mm. And he said, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear it. And I said, okay, but I've, I've told you now. There's nothing else I can do. And like anybody else, I started to pray harder. I started to go to church and go to Sunday school. I started to do so much other stuff because I'm trying to change God's mind. I'm, I'm trying to change his mind so my son can stay here. But unfortunately, it, it didn't happen that way. And the last Sunday that he came to church before he got shot, he was in church and, and no, it wasn't the last Sunday. It was two Sundays before he was killed. And he was in, Sunday, he was in church and he was kind of dozing in church. And I told him, wake up. You know, if you come home, if you come home by 12 o'clock, you'll be able to uh, sleep enough time and get up. So that Sunday, I got up, I joined the church, and so my husband said, Gaddafi woke up and he said, where's my mama? And he said, she gone in the back because she joined the church, and he said, I'm going too. So he got up and he came in the back, and so I looked at him and I said, what are you doing back here? He said, I came to join the church too. And so I said, uh, you, so they give you this little card to fill out, and I said, Qaddafi, don't play with God. And he said, I'm not playing with God. So he had put on his paper that um, he came by Christian experience. That's what he checked. So that means you don't have to be baptized if you got Christian experience. You can if you want to, but if you check Christian experience, then it's okay. And that's what he checked. I said, you can't check Christian experience. And I see, he said, I can't. He said, Mama, don't you remember you used to make us get on the, on the bus and go to church? And I'd forgotten but he hadn't forgotten. So the next Sunday, he didn't go. That's the Sunday. I was praying that God would send me my son back because he, he had started to grow dreads and he just didn't, he wasn't my little boy anymore. And I, I longed to see my little boy. So I came home that Tuesday and I came in the house and my little boy was back. I said, oh, thank you, Lord, my little boy is back. His, he had cut off all his dreads. He had a little low-cut haircut like he was when he was a little boy. And he smiled. I said, you look just like my little boy now. And so I kissed him on the cheek, and he said, oh, moms. And I said, when did you get your hair cut? He said, today. I said, why did you get it cut? He said, I was just tired of that. He said, I'm getting ready to go to Laney College. He said, you know, it's, it's time to straighten up and do things a little different. I said, oh, I'm so proud. That was on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. He got killed on Friday. Um, but my little boy was back. My little boy, my so little boy was, came back. So, so it looks like he was trying to change and take a different course. He would made up his mind that he was, yeah. he was not going to do what everybody else was doing. He was going to be his own man. Because I always told him, I said, you're not a follower, you're a leader. You come from a long line of leaders. You are a leader. You're not a follower. And I think he got it in his head, but it was time to go then. And I don't think that God's care when you get it, as long as you get it. Mm. And he'd gotten it. He'd gotten it. And like I said, he was gone that Friday. And what I learned from that experience is what I tell mothers now. When I found out it was, fr it was Saturday, like I said, it happened on a Friday night, I attended... Um, the coroner's office, because nobody told me that the coroner's office is closed on the weekend. And as a mother, I was saying to myself, why would it be closed? You mm -hmm. got my baby in there. 
At that time, it was still in downtown Oakland. And I went there with me and my husband, my boy, my husband now. He was my fiance at the time. And we knocked on the door and beat on every door there. Finally, the man came down. And he acted as if I was bothering him. And I could care less because he said, what do you want? I said, you got my son in there. And I remember going in and the old faded white walls. It's a, it's a county building. Had to walk up all these stairs. And I just dreaded every step I took up those steps. And he took us in a room with the old metal desk, and he gave me a card to sign. And he said, how do you know your son is in here? He said, do he have any tattoos? And I said, no, he doesn't. Do he have dreads? And unfortunately, that's the way they were categorizing young men during that time, by tattoos and dreads. And they're still doing it. I said, he had none of that. I said, but what he does have is on his right nipple, he has two nipples there. He was born that way. He had two nipples on his right. I said, and on his navel, he has a scar where when he was eight months old, he had to have emergency surgery. And then he said, yes, we have him here. Mm. Now, I always said to police, and I used to tell him, I said, if anything happened, the police would let me know. They didn't. Yeah, I was wondering how you found out. The police didn't let me know. But, and, and when I did talk to, I talked to the chief of police. At that time, it was Chief Word. I said, I want to know why nobody came and told me my son was dead. And he said, well, Miss Washington, what happened is when a body is found in its DOA, it belongs to the state. And it's up to them to contact you. We don't have anything else to do with it. How would I know that? Right. I didn't. Mm. And, I, and I still say, Police still haven't notified me that my son is dead. So one night we had a meeting over here, it was a tenant meeting, and the police was there and I was telling them, I said, nobody's ever contacted me to talk to me about my son. Well, the night that Qaddafi was killed, six, well, two people was killed that night. Both of them attended my church, mm -hmm. the, the two people. Uh, both me and another mother attended that church. That, that weekend, because they were killed on Friday, Six people were killed. August has always been the bloodiest month for murders here in the city of Oakland. I don't know about any place else. Right now, I think we, um, I'm still doing homicides, helping out um, six. We probably got about eight or nine homicides already. This, this, and it's probably more is what I've counted in my head mm -hmm. um, because I'm working for active cases myself. So I know that we have more than that. But the, the guy that in the coroner's office, he never came back and said anything else to my husband and I. So we got up and left. And so we said, where do we go from here? What are we supposed to do? There, he gave us no information. And so I'm standing here, even though I know in my head, God already told you your son was going to die. I had no idea what to do next. I just had no idea. I know that you're supposed to go to the funeral home and make arrangements, but what else am I supposed to do? And my husband and I sat in the van and we talked. I said, I don't, I, I got no idea what to do. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. And we ended up coming, we came back home and we said, well, we'll figure it out. And we were at the house and I started to try to cook because I'm trying to make th things as normal as possible. When all hell is breaking loose all around me, inside my body, inside my head, I'm just torn apart, but I'm trying to keep it as normal as possible. But it wasn't working. Qaddafi's best friend, Markel, lived four, four houses down from us. And he, I guess he went home and told his mother. And I could hear his mother screaming. Now, his mother's name is Jan. I told you that's my best friend. I call her sister. I could hear her screaming from her apartment. And so I said, um, people were running down there because we all knew each other. This is a family in this community. I was going to say. They, we are all family members. Mm. I have no family out here, and I really don't. My mom and my sister and they are all in Florida. So I took the onion that I was cutting up in some turkey wings, and I put it down. I, put a, I remember putting a top on the pot and grabbing my key, and I went to see what was wrong with her. 
And I said, what's wrong with Jan? And somebody said, Markel got killed. And I said, no, he didn't. And they said, yes, he did. I said, no, Markel didn't get killed. Gaddafi got killed. And they said, well, why is she crying and you're not? I had my Bible reading to her, trying to get her to. But she had taken in all my pain. Mm. And she was suffering for me. Mm. And all I could do is just read the Bible and pray with her. But she just took it all in. I loved her before I even loved her more now. That night we were able to get things straight. I was able to, you know, my husband finally came home and he said, let's go home. We went home and he said, we, we need to figure out what we're gonna do. So Janet, I guess she got in touch with some people from the city and they said the thing that we were supposed to do, we had an appointment with Victims of Crime for that Monday. We went there and did the paperwork and stuff. They asked if he was on probation. I said, no, he's not. I said, and so what if he was? They said, if he's on probation, you, you can't get any victims of crime. They won't help you bury him. I was working, and I had a policy. Now, I called to the job on Monday morning to tell them I needed to draw down on my insurance so I could, you know, take care of my baby services. They told me I needed to send something to prove that I didn't kill them. I was appalled. Oh, my God. I, but I understand why now, because people do kill people. People do kill their children and kill their loved ones. Mm. But I was just appalled that she would say that to me. So I got the newspaper articles and stuff, and I got everything, and I had to go to the front office and, and fax it off. I had my appointment that afternoon at Victims of Crime. I did that paperwork. And the woman said, are you going to say anything? I said, you're you going to see me again. I don't know when and I don't know how, but I'm coming back again because this is just not right. And I remember the next day Janet said, well, we're going to the funeral home. She said, which one do you want to go to? I said, I don't want to go to any of them. I didn't. I just wanted to bring my baby home, but I knew that was impossible. But we chose um, Woodard and Williams out in East Oakland because I knew the person that killed my son that was in West Oakland, still in West Oakland. But I went out there with, with Wait, them. you knew the person that killed I don't know you didn't. them personally, but I know they were in West Oakland. You know of the people? I know whoever killed him lives in West Oakland, mm. and they still live here. I know that in my heart. Nobody's told me that. I know it in my heart that they do. So I took him to East Oakland because I knew we were going to have the service at the church. Um, we had to make the arrangements, and it seemed like everything took so long to make the arrangement. And finally, I said to the lady, I said, we need to finish this up because it's taking too long. It was worrying. It was really just getting on my nerves. And she said, what do you want to do? I said, um, I want to do a cremation. I want to do a viewing and a cremation. And she said, the papers say your son was a big-time football player. Why would you want to cremate him? I said, because that's what I want to do. I want to bring my son home with me. She said that I should bury him. I said, I'm not going to bury him. I'm going to cremate him, and I'm going to bring him home. And she said, so I said, and I want a, um, the, the borrowed casket, the one you can use it, and then they take everything out and put new insides in. And so she showed it, showed me the one, she showed me three. I wanted the wood one. And so I said, I want the wood one. And she said, well, don't you want to get a metal one? And I said, no, I know what I want. I'm not going to let you change my mind. And this is what I tell my mothers now. You go to two or three funeral homes. You decide what you want. Don't let them talk you into it because it's their job to make you buy the most expensive thing in there. It's their job to make you buy a $2,000 casket. Mm. I wanted a rental casket because that's what I wanted. And that's what I got. So I said, okay, do you need me for anything else? And she said, well, yeah, you need to sign it. You still have, I, I forgot how much money she said I still had to spend. Because victims of crime money has to be spent either at the cemetery or at the mortuary. It's not money that they'd give you back. Mm. And I didn't want the money back. So I said, Where, do I need to sign anything? And she said, yeah, you need to sign right here. So I signed my name, and I put a date on it. And she said, well, what about the money? I said, tell Jan, 
what I need to do and she'll do it. And I went and sat in the car. I got Jan's keys and went and sat in the car. And I let Jan finish it up. And strange, but that's the way it happened. And that was on Monday and Tuesday. Friday we had the service. So a week later. A week later. He got killed on a Friday. His service was on a Friday. Mm. That Thursday, we went to see him, and I was so afraid that he was going to have a dent in his head or he was going to be some, you know, disfigured because I'd heard he got shot in the head, he got shot in the face, and none of that was true. I told my husband, I said, you go see him first and come back and tell me. I was afraid to go see my own baby. But I knew I had to see him just to know that he was okay. And he came back to me and he said, Marilyn, he fine. He looked like himself. And so I smiled and I went up and saw him. And I touched his hand and I said, I didn't want this for you. But I told you what God had said. So this is, this is what happened. And, you know, I began to rub his hand. And then I put my hand on top of his. And then I sat down in a chair and I just sat there and people, you know, people was coming by saying how sorry they were. But I didn't really hear a lot of that because I'm thinking now there's so much more ahead that I got to do. So that um, I told them I didn't want to sit there with the casket open in front of me. And they said, okay. So they said, well, we'll come and get you and take you out so other people can feel. And I said, okay. But during the time, during the service, uh, Pastor Simmons was really good at it. Because he had told me, if anybody starts to talk or do something you don't like, you just point to me and I'll make them sit down. The service went really well. And they came to get me to take me out and I told them I didn't want to go out. I'd gotten comfortable enough. And I could see Gaddafi where I was sitting. And as people was passing by, I knew it was time to go because his eye began to run water. We both allergic to flowers. And I asked people not to send flowers, <laughs> but people sent flowers anyway. And his, you know, and I know it's embalming fluid that was coming out of his eye. And I said, it's time to go because now he's crying. And so I told him, I said, um, I want you to close the top, it's time to go. And so they did, and we began to walk out, and I'd ordered 100 balloons, and I'd given them to the football players and some of the basketball players. And as they loaded him into the hearse, they began to release their balloons. I had one red balloon, and I released it. It hovered right there for two or three minutes, it wouldn't fly. And I said to the balloon, I said, it's okay, Gaddafi, you can go on and go now. And then it began to move slowly up, and I watched it till I couldn't see it anymore. And that was my day on Friday. We, you know, the church fed us, and we came home, and I said, what do we do now? I didn't know what to do. So I began to pray and think, and I began to journal, I didn't know what to do. So I got up to go to work that Monday morning, and I, the, the phone had rang, and it was my supervisor. And I said, oh, I'm coming to work. She said, no. She said, you can't come to work. And I said, why not? You fired me? And she said, no. <laughs> she said, Marilyn, you can't come back to work right now. She said, you stay home at least for the rest of the month. She said, we're going to pay you. She, she said, don't, don't come back yet. And I said, but what am I going to do? And she said, don't come back to work until the end of the month. And I said, okay. So I sat around the house, and I, just, I was so bored, so tired, and I'm journaling. And I went into Gaddafi's room, and I noticed everything, and it was perfect. He had done his laundry. He had folded it up, and it was in his um, basket. His ID was laying up on, the, um, on his dresser. His bed was made, and the sun was coming through the blinds. And I said, it's a perfect day. I said, Gaddafi, you must have knew you was leaving. You didn't leave a mess for me. And I kind of smiled to myself. We had a cat named Destiny. Destiny, <laughs> Destiny was something else. 
Destiny would come into the room and it was almost like she could see him. She would look and she'd look here and she'd look here. And I remember he would always play with her like that. And he would be looking and I'd say, Destiny, you can see Gaddafi, huh? I said, I wish I could see him. And Destiny would look at me and look back down. But that, it was too much for me. I told my husband, I need to move. I can't stay in this apartment. I mm. couldn't. It was too much for me. Um, and we ended up moving that December. But in August, I went on and got me a therapist because I needed to talk to someone. I was talking to God. I was talking to my pastor, but I needed to talk to someone Did else. Did you ever actually lose it? As would normal, would be normal in this kind of situation? I did lose it. Um, I would get on the freeway and go for a drive and scream at the top of my lungs. That was my way of losing it mm. because I didn't want anybody else to see me break down. And I think that happens to a lot of mothers. We holding it together for everybody else when we should be losing it so that they'll understand this is what's supposed to really happen. My mistake in all of this was I continued to work with other family members. I didn't take the time to grieve for myself. So in 2015, I had a heart attack on December the 13th. So January 2nd, I was able to go out of the house and go shopping and doing things. I had another heart attack. That morning, God said to me, you're going to have a heart attack. And I said, is this unto death? And he said, no, it's not. Well, I thought it would be maybe two or three days later, but he said, no, it's going to be right now. Because when I started, got out of the shower, I started getting dressed, and my chest started hurting. Mm -hmm. And my husband said, what's wrong? And I, and I didn't say anything. And he looked at me, he said, are you having a heart attack? And I said, yeah. And by the time I got dried off, my daughter had come over, and he called for her to help me get dressed. And got me downstairs and got my medicine. And when they came, they said, you're having another heart attack. But they didn't take me to Kaiser this time. They took me to Summit. Mm. And there was, that cardiologist was on duty. And he redid my surgery. Because one of the stents that they put in had pushed it way out. So the heart attack that I had in 2015, uh, I went to the emergency room that night on the Saturday. They, they couldn't find anything, but the reason they kept me because they said my blood pressure was extremely high. And so they monitored me like they were supposed to all night long. The next day, they told me, oh, well, you can go home. I didn't have no problem. So I'm getting dressed to go home, and my daughter Khadijah walks in, and I said, well, where are you going? And she said, oh, mommy, I just came up here to see you. But what she told me later was God told her to get up and come to the hospital. And so she said, don't worry about me. I'm just going to sit over here. And I said, okay. So I'm getting dressed. I called my husband. I said, oh, they say I'm going home. So come get me at um, 10 o'clock. My arms started hurting. My chest felt like it was coming out. I started having a heart attack as I was getting ready to go home. Mm. I had to call the nurse. I had my heart attack in Kaiser. And that's when I had my surgery. They, they, the doctors are not on, they on duty, but they're not in the hospital. And sure enough, I waited and waited, and he came and did the surgery. Um, good doctor, did what he could do. Um, he told me I couldn't do anything but go home, don't lift my hands, don't drive, don't do this, don't do that. And so all I could do then was go home and really think, because now you can't do anything for real. Because you're so hard-headed, Marilyn, you don't listen. Hmm. And so I went home and I got my diaries and I started journaling again. Had my second heart attack. And, I, and, he, and the doctor told me, he said, oh, you can go back to work in a month's time. He said, actually, you're doing real good. Because you have to learn a whole new way of living when you have a heart attack. And it was fine. I did that. But to go back to Qaddafi, after burying him, all the plant praying and journaling and praying and journaling taught me a few things. I said, I'm going to help young people, people, family members who are just like us. So the first thing we did was start a 24-hour hotline. We how, how soon after was that? October. Wow. 
It was in August that he died. It was October. In September, we was pulling it all together. And I'd made up my mind what I wanted to do. And God bless Mitchell Harden. Mitchell Harden was uh, Janet's husband. I wanted billboards, and he set it up with Ella billboards. I could only see one billboard, but that's why they say you can't see what God wants you to have. They gave me 22 billboards all over Oakland and Richmond. Wow. And the billboard simply said, do you know who killed me? With Gaddafi's picture on it. Those billboards, he, they said they'll stay up until somebody buy the billboard or they wash off. They put them up December the 13th. They didn't come down until after March 3rd. March 3rd is his birthday. And that's when they came down. They began to fade right after that. I said, this is all God's plan. It's all his work. And so, so this picture was all over Oakland? All on over Oakland on the billboards. Wow. And sometimes, and it's unfortunate, sometimes when I meet mothers now and I'll say, um, I'm not just a mother doing this work. I'm a mother who started this organization, the Qaddafi Washington Foundation. And they'll say, Qaddafi, was that your son on the billboard? And I say, yes. This one woman told me, she said, when I saw that billboard, I said to myself, now that's a woman who loved her son. She gonna do whatever she can to find out who killed him. And she said, did you ever find out? I said, no, I didn't. She said, you think I, you ever will? I said, yes, I will. And she said, when do you think? I said, it's, it's coming, it's coming. You didn't get any response from all those billboards? They Nobody? got plenty of responses. They didn't follow up. They went to the police or what, the responses? No, they called in and they gave messages, but no, it, it didn't happen the way it should have happened. And all I can say, it didn't, it didn't happen the way we wanted it to happen because God didn't want it to happen that way. Mm. So we have to wait on him for everything. So over the years, I've met with over 5,000 families. I've gotten over 5,000 members. You're a member of my group, and you don't want to be, but anytime your child get killed, you automatically become a member. And it's a group that nobody wants to be a member of, but so many people are. You don't have to put anything in. All you have to do is something unfortunate happens. So we've met, my husband and I, we've met with many families. Two and three in the morning, we used to go out and meet in the middle of the streets where the homicide would happen and talk to families right there. How would you know? They call you, or um, things have been so good. We uh, we talked to the police department. They sent me an email. Wow. Back then, they used to call me and say, "We got a homicide on 98th Avenue. Um, can you come?" And I would get up and go. Wow. Because I needed, I needed, I needed to keep busy. I needed to know some things so that I can pass them on to the next family. I needed to be busy, but most of all, I needed to get this organization going and running correctly. It's still not running the way I think it should be run, but evidently it's running good enough because it's 20 years it's been in operation, so it must be doing good enough. So you are really well known now. Um, I think a lot of people know of me. Mm -hmm. They don't know me, though, because people know that my son got killed. They don't know all the stuff that led up to it. They don't know how it really happened and what happened. So, yeah, they know of me. So the Qaddafi Washington Foundation, what services or what, how, do you, how else do you help people through that organization? We help by taking them to victims of crime, making sure they can get victims of crime, directing them to the funeral homes and telling them, don't choose just the one, that, the first one you go to because uh, that may not be the one that you really need. Earlier during the years, we used to support them with cash, um, with flowers. Um, our funding, unfortunately, has dried up, so we don't do so much of that anymore. Uh, the most I do now is uh, give journals, uh, help them with meetings, also help them to get their funeral and stuff set up. And I think that means more to them than the cash because it's so hurtful to not have anyone to talk to and you would think it's a house full of people they have someone to talk to 
but they don't always have anyone to talk to mm-hmm. because their family members love you, but they don't, um, they don't want to talk to you about that mm-hmm. because it's too much. They want to do something else and anything else but talk about it. Well, you, want, you still want to talk about your baby. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about what happened. You still want to cry. You still want to scream. You want to know what happened. All of us, every mother and father that I've ever dealt with, and even the ones I didn't deal with, we want to know what happened, what yeah. took place. It's called closure. Right. Well, no, and I don't agree with that. It's not closure because even when they find out who did it, there's no closure. Mm-hmm. You just happen to know what happened. There's no closure. Mm-hmm. There'll never be any closure. The closure will come for me when I close my eyes. That would be my closure. Mm-hmm. I will have done anything and everything humanly possible to find out what happened to my baby. That would be my closure because I've done what I needed to do. And I explained it to one mother. It's just like when you find out you're pregnant. You buy an outfit to bring the baby home in. You fix the room for the baby. You know, you buy the baby bed, you get the little bumpers to go around the bed and stuff. Well, unfortunately, it's the same thing. When your baby die, no matter what age he, he or she is, you buy a casket. You have to buy an outfit to put them in. It's the same. It's just reversed. They're older then. But it's the same pre- pretense. You got to do the same thing. You got to buy something for them to sleep in. You got to buy something for them to wear. And then you got to be there with them. Mm. You stay with them until the end. And so I've learned a lot, and I, when I have classes, I teach a lot. I'm now, I want to do podcasts called A Mother's Story. And I want women from all over the world to reach out to do their story. There are stories to be told. I like to say that we are the forgotten group. People know about us, but we are forgotten because people will talk around us, they'll talk about us, they'll talk through us, they don't want to sit and talk with us. The only one who wants to talk with us are people who are just like us. Well, it's, there's really nothing for me to say. It's um, a lot of this probably because most people that, the people that haven't been through something like this can't relate. It's an experience that I can't relate to. Prayerfully, I hope you never have to. No. But, I hope you never have to. But I agree. I feel like your story, those kind of stories need to come out. Yes. Because it's, a, it's, it's part of life. It's, yes. It happens here in our communities. It happens all the time. It happens all over the United States. Yes. Everywhere. Everywhere. Every day it happens. Yeah. So the stories need to come out because I think they can help people be stronger. And that's exactly what I'll be doing. Yeah. I want to know, you turned your pain into action, which is, I think, also a way to work through the pain. Yes. Do you have support? Who supports you? Over the years, there have been other mothers who've decided to support me. I have my mother, and God knows I have Janet. (laughs) (laughs) I have my husband, and some of the mothers, they call and say, I want to know how you're doing today. Mm -hmm. Tell me how Marilyn's doing. Because they know how important it is to reach out to another mother. And the simple thing is, we can keep another mother or father lifted up by making a simple phone call. Sometimes we don't realize it, but it can be done. Mm-hmm. So the forgotten mothers and fathers will be remembered with a mother's story. Any other last comments that you would like to share? Well, if someone out there is listening and they hear this and it touched their heart in any kind of way, and they know someone who's lost someone, and even if it's just, if it's a cancer, you know, breast cancer. It doesn't have to be a homicide. All mothers have a story about their baby. 
Even if their baby is 60 years old, that's their baby. I want to hear from those people. Yeah. I want them to be able to come and tell their story. Well, thank you, Marilyn. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.